There we are. Well, good morning, everybody. I'm just going to start with some questions this morning. Uh, if you know the answer uh, to the question, and many of you probably will, by all means, just call it out. Uh, but this is my first question. Um, how do you fit four elephants into a mini? Yeah, that's right. Two in the front, two in the back. That's correct. Um, how can you tell if there's an elephant in your fridge? Mm, Prince in the butter. How can you tell if there's two elephants in your fridge? Two sets of footprints in the butter. That's right, yeah. How can you tell if there's three elephants in your fridge? There are three sets of footprints in the butter. How can you tell if there are four elephants in your fridge? There's a mini parked out the front. That's a joke for small children. You may already be familiar with it. If you weren't, then you are. It's funny because it's ridiculous. And um, as a ridiculous joke, it may help small children overcome their fear of large animals. Another thing that we do with small children is a little game involving toes, which begins with, this little piggy went to market. And ends with something like, little one went scurrying, or you know, how does it end? Yeah, wee, 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 all the way home. That's right. And, and runs up their leg and they giggle and it's all very exciting. And uh, in, in actual fact, um, uh, that helps little children overcome uh, fears as well um, by making them ridiculous. Might help children overcome their fears of little animals, scurrying animals like mice. Well, <clears throat> both large animals like elephants and small animals like mice uh, can be powerful and destructive. You don't want either in your pantry. But with care, we can learn how to live uh, without harming each other. Both mice and elephants can be powerful and destructive, but we don't want our children growing up frightened of them because they don't need to be. Well, today we're looking at Paul's first visit to the city of Ephesus, a city in the ancient Roman province of Asia, a city that today is an archaeological site in western Turkey. And I've entitled this sermon, Demonstrations of Power, Part 1. Because this week, and when we come back to this text in two weeks' time, uh, we're looking at, in Acts chapter 19, extraordinary demonstrations of power. Heavenly power, satanic power, spiritual power, even cultural power and economic power. There's another one I just thought of. And this week, um, we are going to look at three pericopes, three scenes that I want to look at. They're the same three that we've just heard um, Naomi uh, bring to us in our Bible reading, page 901. You might like to follow along, page 901. Scene one, Paul, having just arrived in Ephesus, goes to the local synagogue and attends there for the first three months of his stay. And we are familiar with this pattern. Paul always begins in the synagogue because the Christian gospel is first and foremost a Jewish message about the Jewish Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth, son of David. Um, and what Paul did in those three months was powerful. It was tremendously powerful. He, he, spoke, he spoke boldly. 
he argued persuasively. Or, as you'll see it in other translations, his method was reasoning and persuading. Paul appealed both to the mind and to the emotions, as we might say. What he had to say was true and rational. He appealed, without doubt, he appealed to the Holy Scriptures, all of which point to Jesus. And I'm sure he appealed to the history of the nation of Israel, of which Jesus was the fulfillment. And I'm sure that he also probably appealed to recent history, the things which Jesus had said and done publicly and openly in front of thousands of people and which were widely known and discussed. He appealed to common sense and to compassion, no doubt. This is good news. Come, enter, come, enter the kingdom of God. Let Jesus be your king. Call upon him as saviour while the door is open. And uh, gospel ministry is, of course, radically inclusive. Forgiveness of sins and eternal life to everyone who believes. Well, Paul is demonstrating heavenly power. Rational discourse, compassionate, desiring to persuade people, not for his own sake, but rather for the sake of their welfare. Um, It's a demonstration of power, of heavenly power. Then there's a different demonstration of power. In the synagogue itself, some maligned the way. Literally, some became hardened and unbelieving. And actually, gospel ministry does that. That's one of the purposes of gospel ministry because gospel ministry is radically divisive. Some hate the message more and more, the more and more they hear it. Literally Hardened unbelievers away. They spoke evil of it, as other translations have it. In other words, they lied, and their lies were slanderous and scandalous. But their lies carried the day. And that's a demonstration of power too. I mean, it's a lot of power. They got, they got Paul to leave. They shut down gospel ministry in the synagogue. That's a lot of power. And Paul's response, amazingly, is that he withdrew. He made no attempt at counterattack or retaliation or self-defense or even rebuke. He just left. That might look lame, humiliating, weak, but he just withdrew. Well, uh, we thought um, Paul was impressive, but it looks like power encounter number one went to the dark side. Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Paul did withdraw, but he found another open door, a public auditorium, and he and the disciples who had believed went with him and they had discussions every day. Without disruption or distraction, this went on for two years, by which time we read all of the Jews and all of the Greeks, that is to say all of the non-Jews resident in the Roman province of Asia, had heard the gospel. And that's extraordinary. They'd all heard the gospel. They all had a chance to respond to the good news about Jesus. Isn't that extraordinarily powerful? It turns out clearly that by forcing Paul out of the synagogue, the blasphemers had dealt themselves a major defeat. At least in the synagogue, Paul was contained. Their rejection of him released him on the wider world. Round one to God. Well, 
scene two, or round two, opens with an observation that in those days God was doing extraordinary miracles through Paul, verse 11. Extraordinary is a good translation of the Greek phrase, which is something literally like not the usual kind. Uh, the word extraordinary is, being, is not being used as a superlative. It's not saying God did amazing miracles, although I'm were amazing. No, that's not what it's saying. It's saying that God did miracles that were not the ordinary kind. They were extraordinary. And I guess the point is this. There is nothing extraordinary about miracles per se, but these ones were really different. Not without precedent. Similar things happen in the Old Testament and in, in Jesus' ministry, but these are pretty unusual. How unusual? Well, actually, even Paul's dirty laundry the sweat bag from around his neck, the bandana, his, his work apron, even his dirty laundry taken to the sick and laid on them ushered in miraculous healing and effective deliverance ministry. That's pretty unusual. No one comes to my house asking for my dirty laundry. Praise God. Well, there are different times and different seasons. And Luke is telling us that this was a season of unusual demonstration of power from God. And what did these power demonstrations look like? Well, people were healed of their sicknesses and diseases and disabilities and infirmities. And people also were uncleaned. Sorry, were uncleaned. That's not right. They were cleaned. They were delivered of unclean spirits. In other words, these demonstrations of power ended suffering. And does that guarantee that people are going to believe in Jesus? Well, no, no, it doesn't. But it's really pretty wonderful and effective advertising, isn't it? Um, and it's appropriate advertising. Um, an, an appropriate power demonstration from an all-knowing, all-powerful, all-loving God who, who died for us through Jesus, his son, cancelling all curses and all debts on the cross. Um, so a wonderful demonstration of heaven, saving heavenly power, uh, advertising a saving good news gospel. Well, uh, Satan soon counters with his own demonstration, verses 13 to 16. Uh, texts dealing with deliverance ministry are always mysterious to one degree or another, but I think it's some light on what's going on here. Um, when, when we're talking about deliverance ministry and demons and unclean spirits, where do we start? Well, I think, uh, for me, a good place to start uh, is to recognize that in the physical world, God has made an awesome, indeed bewildering, array and variety of material creatures, plants and animals and, and uh, birds and insects, some huge, some tiny. A, 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 an astonishing variety to his physical creation. So too, we to understand that there is variety with respect to spiritual creatures, angels and demons and unclean spirits and seraphim and cherubim, cherubim, etc., etc. And they too vary in power and influence. Now, as human beings, secondly, we always treat all of God's creatures with respect. All of them, especially perhaps the ones that can talk back. But that doesn't mean we need to be frightened of them. Um, I, I have a friend uh, whose mother is a devout Hindu, 
And as such, I understand that she invests significant energy in doing things to protect her household from unclean spirits. Now, she is a dear woman, devout and sincere in her faith. But I feel sorry. I feel sorry for her that she fears creatures that actually fear her. And why are they scared of her? Well, actually, because she's the one created in the image of God. Not them. Although she doesn't know it, she has authority over them. And all things being equal, they have to obey her. Now, all human beings, theoretically speaking, all human beings have this authority, so it's no surprise to learn that the world is full of people who try to cast out demons with varying degrees of success. In verse 13, we meet some Jews who obviously enjoy some success with their newfound technique, of which they're very proud. By invoking the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, they were able to command unclean spirits out of people who had them. And I guess that they were successful enough to, to, to keep going. By the way, the phrase in verse 13, those who were demon-possessed, is an unfortunate historic mistranslation and misunderstanding of the Greek phrase, those having evil spirits. Um, human beings can have evil spirits, but evil spirits can't have human beings. In the same way that you can't have a cold, but a cold can't have you. You can have worms, but you can't be worm-possessed. The mistranslation does little to help people overcome their fear. Well, how do you get unclean spirits? Well, how do you get worms? You get worms through ignoring rules about hygiene. And unclean spirits you get through ignoring rules about spiritual hygiene. And actually it can happen in many, many different ways. But what we need to know with respect to today's text is that anything related to the occult is especially contaminating. Uh, well, in, in, in verse 14, we meet a subset of these Jewish men, the seven sons of Sceva. Uh, Jewish aristocracy, actually, sons of a high priest. And uh, they know that there is power in the name of Jesus, but they don't, unfortunately for them, understand the nature of that power. And that's going to cost them dearly. Why is Jesus' name powerful? Well, because he is Lord. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. How did he get this authority? Well, he got this authority by being born a human being. All human beings are created in the image of God. That is to say, they represent God. They have his authority. But you see, the rest of us, we tend to ignore the rules and we tend to ignore God and we waste that authority misrepresenting God. Well, Jesus never did that. He never misrepresented God. In fact, actually, he, he, he never sinned. He represented God perfectly. So perfectly, in fact, that as the Son of God, we see exactly what God is like when we look at Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for our sin, not for his own. And he was raised from the dead on the third day for his vindication, and for our justification. And so he was given his birthright as a human being, the right to rule. 
the right to rule in the image and likeness of God. So when dealing with demons, they, they all know that they have to obey Jesus and they all know that they have to obey instructions and directions given in Jesus' name. Um, they have lots and lots of tactics for outmaneuvering those who don't really know what they're doing, just as we see here. And what unclean spirits inevitably do is exploit legal loopholes because actually they do obey the rules. This particular unclean spirit, which appears to be quite powerful, knows that the seven sons of Sceva are out of their depth and out of order by claiming and using the authority of Jesus when they themselves haven't surrendered to that authority. They haven't come to faith in Christ. They, they haven't become Christians. So they don't have Christ's protection. They are as rebellious as the spirit itself. So the seven sons end up being taught quite a lesson. They, they get learned good. All seven of them overpowered by one man. All seven of them injured and bleeding. All seven of them sent fleeing naked. And you know the image of seven Jews running away naked, running away from one man is a powerful Old Testament image. This is a desperately humiliating defeat, showing them unequivocally that God is not on their side. Although the rebuke is from God, the power is not from heaven. The power is from hell. And it really is quite a demonstration of power, isn't it? Well, some things to notice before we move on. Firstly, please notice that the evil spirit didn't beat up anybody. It was the man who did that. The evil spirit exercised power by being able to control the man, probably through emotions that the man himself was not able to control. This is a man out of control. This is a man with no self-control. Evil spirits have no power except that they are able to manipulate the wills of human beings, especially through tormenting them and driving them into behaviors that the human being uh, experiences as a compulsion. Um, I'm not wanting to suggest that the man didn't enjoy himself. I'm sure he had a great time. Um, violence is enjoyable. The exercise of Power over others by violent means is extremely pleasurable and powerfully addictive. Um, I haven't actually looked, but I would be surprised if there isn't a computer game based upon this event. I mean, wouldn't it be fun? You get to beat up exorcists, and the more you beat them up, the more power you get. And you can beat up more exorcists. I mean, if there isn't a computer game based on this, then there should be. Well, some basic guidelines in case you find yourself in a similar situation. Firstly, do not attempt to exorcise unclean spirits out of anyone who isn't a baptized Christian. If they're not a baptized Christian, that's the conversation that needs to happen first. You do them no favors by proceeding. And they've got worse problems than a little bit of demonic uh, um, contamination. So, so the, the gospel conversation is the one you need to be having first. Assuming that they're a baptized Christian, second, ask for God's protection in Jesus' name. You will have it. Third, as part of your opening prayers, call all unclean spirits to attention and forbid them in Jesus' name from any disruptive or diversionary behaviors. 
You can forbid violence, vomiting, nausea, coughing fits, or any other disruptive or diversionary behavior in Jesus' holy name, and they must obey you, and they will, assuming that you're a Christian. Fourth, always treat all of God's creatures with respect and politeness, always. Fifth, if you command an unclean spirit to go and it refuses, there are various things you can do. However, the most usual tactic for them to employ is that of the legal loophole, because they obey the rules. Um, They will stay if they have a legal right to stay. This is where things get complicated, but not impossible. You'll need to prayerfully discern. In other words, by talking to Jesus and by talking to the person that you're caring for, you'll need to discern what decision has been made along the way, either by them or perhaps by someone with authority over them, that gave that spirit legal right of entry in the first place. Then you need to cancel that legal right by taking it to the cross where all curses and debts are cancelled. Uh, Deliverance ministry, in essence, is a form of discipleship, teaching folk what to repent of, how to renounce sin, how to trust and receive Jesus' forgiveness, how to depend upon his grace, and how to receive his love. It's just a form of discipleship. And in fact, discipleship is is often just a form of deliverance ministry, uh, physically, spiritually, emotionally, whatever. Well, films like The Exorcist, which I haven't seen, but I know it's become a cultural icon. Films like The Exorcist are most unhelpful insofar as they excite fear of the demonic. The truth is, the spirit is afraid of you. You're a human being created in the image of God and in Christ conformed to Christ's image. You carry everywhere you go the authority of God over evil. We just need to obey the rules. Doing things God's way, not Satan's way. Well, mice and elephants can be powerful and destructive, but they are God's creatures too, and there are safe ways of dealing with them. In the same way, direct encounters with unclean spirits tend to be rare to very rare in Western societies. They like to keep themselves well hidden. The fewer people in Western societies who know about them, the better it is for them. Most of us, I would like to think, will never have a direct encounter with anything like what we see in this passage today. But if you do encounter them, don't freak out. Remember, they're more scared of you. You're a human being created in the image of God. And if you get scared at night, remember that every creature must obey Jesus and therefore must obey you when you give them a command in his name. Well, back to the text. Uh, Paul and his miracles were impressive But Satan responded with his own works of power. Who won? Well, let's keep reading. Uh, Scene 3, verses 17 to 20. Actually, Satan's demonstration of power completely backfired. Everyone heard about this astonishing incident, and they were all seized with fear. 
But they weren't intimidated. Rather than deciding that the meaning of this event was that, oh, it's really bad, we shouldn't challenge demons. Rather than thinking that, no, instead they interpreted the event correctly. Don't mess with Jesus. He's Lord. And it turns out that actually many believers there were messing with Jesus. For although they'd come to faith in Christ and received his forgiveness and been baptized, there had been inadequate repentance They hadn't renounced, they had not separated themselves from their old ways of doing things. Now, Ephesus, as we'll see next week, Ephesus in the ancient world was a capital city, perhaps the capital city of magic and occult practices. The phrase Ephesian writings means um, precisely the kind of of magical spells and and curses and so on and so forth that, that, that we see here in, in Acts 19 being burnt. Well, these Christians had been a bit slow in realizing how totally they, had need to, they needed to be done with satanic power methods. They burnt their scrolls. Even though they were worth, in today's money, in the order of six to seven million dollars. Some might say, why couldn't these scrolls have been sold and the money given to the poor? Others might say, the burning of books as a symbolic gesture is always backward and unhelpful, indicative of intolerance and fear. Well, actually, both comments miss the point. What must be realized here is that these Christians are not burning scrolls as some kind of proud symbolic act, but rather because they know that they were inherently dangerous and they don't want other people being tempted by them. It was out of love that they destroyed these articles. And as they dealt with this corporate sin, because it was a corporate sin, as they dealt with this corporate sin, God blessed their corporate collective witness. And in this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. In other words, the church was a powerful church, even more powerful than before, seeing people converted and baptized and discipled. Well, what possibly might we be able to learn this morning from the example of the Ephesian Christians? Well, uh, this is a question of what to keep and what not to keep and why. This is a question of spiritual hygiene as well as this being a question of temptation and avoiding it. Uh, we, We do live in a world that is heavily contaminated and infested with spiritually unclean things. Should that worry us? No, not unduly. Uh, In the book of Acts, Luke and Paul once boarded a ship and sailed upon a ship that had been dedicated to demons. But that didn't worry them. We we don't need to go on any kind of spooky ghost hunts. Can things be spiritually washed? Well, actually, yes, they can, and we do it all of the time. Uh, The Bible tells us how, uh, 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 to 5, Everything God created is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving. Because it is consecrated, that is to say, it is made spiritually clean by the word of God and by prayer. Uh, In restaurants, for example, we may be offered meat that has been sacrificed to a God other than the God of the Bible. If that is true, that meat has been offered to demons. 
A simple prayer, which Christians often call grace, is all that is needed. Uh, Dear God, we receive this food with thanksgiving in the name of Jesus. Please bless it to our bodies. Amen. And for good measure, perhaps we could add, please bless everyone who has helped us to this meal. We receive it with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Uh, Some articles uh, manufactured overseas, especially articles perhaps uh, which are um, objects of art or of culture from other societies, may likewise have been dedicated to demons or have been associated with demonic power through idolatry. A simple prayer, if there's any doubt, if there's any concern, a simple prayer can suffice. Dear God, thank you for this in Jesus' name. I cancel and break any spiritual power associated with it as Christ's steward to God's glory. Amen. So can Christians have African or Asian artifacts at home from traditional cultures? Uh, Well, sure, of course. If there's any doubt, if there's any fear or worry, don't need to be be frightened. Just just pray and break any powers that might be attached in Jesus' name. Receive it with thanksgiving. The one exception is anything that is plainly an idol. Uh, Idols, idolatry in a sense, is spiritual pornography. Idolatry. An idol seeks to represent God, but actually he already has his representatives. They're human beings. Any statue depicting God or a God uh, defaces God's image. It, It misrepresents him, it distorts him, it limits him, and is fundamentally opposed to God's glory. Why keep something in your house that angers God by misrepresenting him. He's already represented there by you. I hope you can see, for example, that it would be completely inappropriate for a Christian to have as a decoration a statue of Buddha in their house, just as one example. Well, as for Perth, um, unlike Ephesus, occult practices are not mainstream here in Perth. I mean, I'm sure it happens. It's just not mainstream like it was in Ephesus. We have other idols, sexual, permi- uh, sexual permissiveness, material comfort, luxury, busyness, career success, etc., etc. We do well to follow the example of the Ephesian Christians with anything that remains in our homes that continues to be a source of temptation to us. I mean, some things are obvious. Some things, obviously, we have to destroy and get rid of. Pornography would be an obvious example. Or anything that might have that same kind of effect upon us. Other things may be less obvious and quite individual. For example, I've heard of Christians burning their heavy metal CDs. Not because Christians can't own heavy metal CDs, but rather because for that person, they represented a real temptation to move back into old ways of doing things. If it's, if it's, if it's tempting you into sin, just get rid of it. Just get it out of your house. Other things may be deeply hidden and corporate rather than individual. The sin of the Ephesian Christians was a corporate sin. Clearly, together... 
they'd said that it was actually, you know, we're free in Christ. It's okay to have these books and scrolls. They encouraged each other in their sin. It was a corporate sin. At a pastor's get-together recently, I was listening to our guest speaker, uh, the Reverend Dr. Canon Peter Adam, um, uh, a Bible scholar from Melbourne, and uh, he said with a touch of mischief in his voice, most of the things he says, he says with a touch of mischief in his voice, uh, Peter said, I, the question I love to ask pastors is, what's your church's corporate sin? And I'm really glad he didn't ask me. Because if he had, I would have given the worst possible answer. I don't know. I suspect that I'm in denial about it. Because deep in my soul, I know that it will cost us corporately six to seven million dollars to get it right. It's going to be costly. But if we deal with it, it's going to make our witness so much more powerful and effective. So why don't we now pray? I'm going to suggest two prayers, and I'm going to lead us into prayers. Firstly, Lord, what do I need to burn? What do I need to radically cut out of my life? And secondly, Lord, what do we corporately need to burn? What sinful things have we all actually agreed is okay, but it's not okay. We're messing with you, Jesus. Please have mercy. Let's, let's pray. Let's do that now.